Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. everybody, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. You're joining me on what I have been calling my escape cast, which is good, true, beautiful, and wholesome distraction for you in this strange season that we find ourselves living through. Today, I have the great fun of inviting a very special and very related guest to me on the show, which is my brother, Nathan Clarkson. Welcome on the show, Nathan. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So I have been, as I was telling you before, Nathan, kind of doing these as a good hour of sanity and distraction for everybody and doing them on interesting topics. And today is going to be so fun because we're just going to um, talk about our favorite characters from various stories and books all around the theme of good men in literature and movies. And that relates to Nathan's book, which is coming out today when I post this podcast, uh, good man. So Nathan, why don't you give everybody kind of a introduction to who you are and what you do in the world and where you're podcasting with me from, because you're not actually with me, obviously. That is true. I am right now podcasting from a quarantined studio apartment in New York City. Um, I am an actor. I'm an author. I'm a filmmaker. I love stories, as you very well know. Since I was a very young man, uh, we have spent many an hour fighting imaginary enemies in plain pretend. And I grew up and didn't want to stop. And so I uh, have lived in both Los Angeles and New York for the past decade. And I've been lucky enough to be in uh, feature films and TV shows and also lucky enough to write my own stories down in books. And so if it has to do with stories, um, I want to be a part of it. And that is kind of my life in a nutshell. I um, love reading, watching movies. I love taking walks. I love uh, our golden retriever back home, Darcy. And I'm trying to think of anything else. Uh, That's about it. Yeah. (laughs) Those are pretty good things. I love the idea of... um that you loved pretending as a kid. And so you just kept on doing that as a profession. I feel like I loved the books that we read and things we pretended as a kid. And so I decided to analyze them. But honestly, (laughs) I feel like yours might have been the more sensible choice. Um, And it's definitely the more fun choice because we were just talking and you're, you know, grading papers and having to uh, (laughs) dive into the, you know, the original meaning of each word in the Greek and this and I just get to play, you know, pretend characters and actually get paid for it. So it is a lot of fun. I don't know. That's pretty awesome. Also, am I right in saying that where you guys live, you're around a lot of other artistic ish people, right? Did you tell me that there's opera singers in your building? Oh, yes. We live in, we could throw a rock and hit the Lincoln Center, the Metropolitan Opera House here in New York, the most famous all around the world. And we live in the apartment building where pretty much all of the young Broadway actors, singers, opera singers, and symphony musicians live. And so <laughs> so we are constantly confronted by amazing talent. Um, and you know, the first night, it's funny, the first night um, I, I lived here, we... We, we, you know, is going down to sleep, and all of a sudden, I hear this beautiful um, classical violin piece. I think it was Bach playing through the walls of our <laughs> apartment, and I was haunted, and it was gorgeous. And I went, "Wow!" And then the next night, it happened again. I was like, "Okay, well, that's that's pretty." 
and then the next night it happened again. And I got to tell you, it's uh, it's hearing Bach over and over again for three hours at a time at midnight uh, can change your whole perspective on beauty and high art. But you know, it is actually a lot of fun to hear all the you know the Broadway singers coming in, singing at the top of their lungs, and the opera singers um, singing in their apartments. So it's definitely an energy uh, of artistic and creative prowess, which is so much fun to be around. I feel like opera singers and authors should not live in the same building. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely a hard mix. So Nathan, I feel like um, in a tiny New York apartment, um, you must need some forms of escape generally. And then when we're all locked in our houses all the time, you must need forms of escape more than ever. So I've been asking everybody, how have you been staying sane? And what little portals of escape have you found in your life these days? Okay, well, I have a few portals of escape. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the ones that'll make me look the best first. So I've definitely been reading a lot more. I've decided to go back and read all the novels and classics that I've never read, and I really should have because mm. I had this thing for so long in my mind that I wanted to read novels that no one had heard of, and I was kind of like, oh, the classics, everyone's read those. <laughs> but so this year, I'm going back and reading the books that are history that you really should read. And mm. so I started this year with um, Picture of Dorian Gray, which I absolutely loved. Right now, I'm reading Fahrenheit 451. Mm. Uh, I. I am in love with dystopian novels now. I didn't know that Ray Bradbury was such an amazing um, wordsmith and poet and, and his ideas and concept. It just is gorgeous. I love it. Um, so that is one way I've been escaping. I've been reading a lot more, but I really just said that to impress all of you academics and intellectuals. <laughs> what I've really been doing is playing a lot of video games too. And there's one specifically that I like a lot called Apex Legends. And it's basically the Hunger Games come to life you land in a huge map with three people and there's 60 other people in the map and you have to survive with your three people and whoever is the last person standing wins and i will just play round after round after round of that and it's it's quite fun so that is definitely one of my more escapist ways i've been dealing with the quarantine well that's very fun and also um you have gotten me into video games which is like a very proud of that yeah you should be very proud of it i also feel very like weird about it i'm trying to figure out how i can like integrate it into my identity um but you uh you got me into playing video games and so i've been doing kind of like story oriented ones where every choice that you make uh shapes the story that you're telling with video game and it's funny because it's still it's like this weird mixture of watching a tv show but then you're a part of making the tv show happen um and it's, yeah, it's really fascinating. So I'm actually... It, it excites me because it's a totally new medium for art because we used to have this idea yeah. that games are just little games, but it's so much fun to see new mediums for art. And that's what they are. They really are art house games. So I'm so happy that I corrupted you and got you into video games. Yeah. Nathan got me on his birthday because it's his birthday on April 19th. And so um, I think I actually did get you a, a present, but you were also like, for my birthday, you have to play this one thing just once. And then I got hooked. And so that was kind of a fun way to escape. Um, <laughs> Very manipulative, huh? Yeah. Also, I've been trying to do the classics thing too. Um, especially I've been like listening to audiobooks, and I've kind of been doing that since I started the PhD. But the one that I've been doing lately, which has actually been really fun, is I've been listening to the audiobook for The Odyssey. And it's read, oh. read by Ian McKellen. So read by Gandalf. Wow. Which is so fun. And I don't, I thought that, I thought the Odyssey was a lot longer than it was. Mom swears she read it to us and I'm sure she probably did. I have no recollection of it. So everything is kind of like reading it for the first time for me. Um, But it's not actually that long. Like it's like 11 hours long on Audible, which is like not long for an audiobook. So that's been kind of my escape has been um, Odysseus trying to get home while I'm trying to leave home. 
See, uh, I can't remember reading a lot of those as a kid, but I do remember the Book of Virtues cartoon, and that's yes. where I got a lot of my knowledge of Greek mythology. I hate to admit. <laughs> it's probably good because, like, a lot of it's pretty intense. Like, a lot of people are dying and <laughs> trying to woo other people. Also, the thing that's the most amusing that I totally forgotten about the Odyssey is that it starts with. Sorry, I'm getting totally off track, but it starts with you know Odysseus is away from home, and his wife is like, "I think my husband's still alive. I'll I'll just like." make a cool tapestry but then she, <laughs> <laughs> while I wait for him but then there's like um, like hundreds of suitors that are trying to to like be like your husband's dead marry us and she's like no nah, I'd rather just do this tapestry and they're like no we're gonna trash your house and I'm listening to this and I'm like what is this story this is so bizarre anyway um so that that's been my escapism has been listening to Gandalf read me Greek mythology, which is pretty fun. Well, I guess you could always, you know, make a tapestry if you really need another escape. That's true. But Nathan, Hobby Lobby isn't open. So where... <laughs> that's right. It's true. <laughs> uh, so, well, I'm glad that we're both uh, finding very escapist forms of stories to tell. Also, you cook a lot, don't you? I do. I I had this all in my head. I was going to be a cook someday. I wanted to be a cook when I was young. And now I have this stew, quarantine stew, that I just invented <laughs> with the things in my cabinet. And I ha- and now all the time. I'm just very proud that I came up with this recipe. But yes, I've been creatively cooking and experimenting. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Food is our, our one pleasure in these strange times, Nathan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which is really too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know it is. But we're getting our one daily walk, so we'll be fine. That's uh, good. So today is a huge day for you because your book is coming out. Um, Yes. Tell us about your book and what it's about and what inspired you to write it. And yeah, tell us more. Well, the book is called Good Man. And the subtitle is here. I'll actually read it off the cover. An Honest Journey into Discovering Who Men Were Actually Created to Be. And I think the book has come out of years of trying to figure out who I was created to be um, as a man, as a person. And I think we get so many mixed messages from both culture and religion. And oftentimes it can feel hopeless to figure out why we're here, what we're meant to do and who we're meant to be. And so this book is mostly memoir-esque stories of me on this journey, discovering who as a man I was created to be. Cause I do think there's intention behind us. I do think there's intention behind the universe. And like I said earlier, stories have always inspired me in kind of awaken this realization in my heart that I can be a hero, that I can live into an epic, that I have a, I have something to tell with my life, a story to tell with my life. And so this book is, I, I wanted it to be both an encouragement and catharsis and maybe inspiration to any other guys out there who may have be having an identity, identity crisis or feel lost as a result of um, a lost culture as a result of mixed messages, but still have the desire implanted in their heart that I I was made for something. Who am I made to be in this world? Who was I created to be? So it's a very personal, very raw, authentic uh, book of stories and thoughts on who men were created to be, and especially in a culture that either forgot or doesn't care. I think that's so important. And obviously, it's, it's a easy thing for me to recommend because I know you and I see the integrity in your life. And so I can commend it full heartedly. But I think it's such an important topic right now because I think there's been, there's been so many examples of, of bad men in the world that sometimes we can almost just kind of become afraid to even have a good vision of what a a good man would be like, right? Like we almost get so tired of talking about, masculinity or femininity because we see so many bad examples of it but if we're ever going to have really good men we can't just only 
tear down men. We need to create a beautiful vision of, of what it is to be a man and be a good man. That's the exactly. only, you, you can't, you can't fix all of the evils of the world. Um, only by tearing things down, you need to have something that's creative and beautiful. And that's what I love about this book and the vision behind it is it's, it's leaning into that desire to be a good man and that there actually is something good in, in men and, and the design for men and who they can become and what they can live into. I love the idea of vision um, that you say, because I do think for anything to become realized, we have to have a vision of what that looks like. And a lot of you know literature towards men has just been a set of rules, be better, be good. And this is definitely not that. I want to create a vision that we can all um, slowly but surely through mistakes, through faults, through failures, through doubts, move towards and figure out what that vision is. But I feel like in culture, like you're talking about, it's not even that we don't care anymore, maybe so much. It's that we don't even know. I'd say a lot of the visions of men we see in TV or literature or movies um, are, are just, how, how do I put it? Bankrupt, uh, anemic. That's a great way to put it. Anemic visions of men. And so these young men who are growing up today don't even understand or have a vision of what a good man would look like. And that's why I love, and I think stories are powerful. So I think the images of men we give will shape the next generation, the generations after. So we have to learn as storytellers and artists to create good visions of the, of the people we want to be. So I love going through this today with you and finding some of the good visions that we've seen in art of men. Yeah. Well, and I, I, lo- I love all that. And I think it's similar to how I felt like when I think about living into my womanhood, I always felt like something that mom did really well for me was that she helped me imagine not what a woman should be in like a limited sense of you have to live mm. up to these four qualities, but of what women could be, you know what I mean? That there was, mm. there was this fullness and this capaciousness that you could live into. And I think the same thing is true for men. It's it's not just a list of rules or you have to be this to be manly or or that to prove what it is to be a good man, but that there's this this bigger vision of what men could be. That they could be tender and kind, that they could be strong, that they could be people who kept their promises. And I think we just kind of need a renewed vision of those could be's rather than those should be's. It's interesting you, you say that just really quick because in the in the introduction I talk about when we hear the words good man and in your case good woman we have all these images that flood our mind and most mm. of them come from media whether it's yeah. a Marlboro man whether it's Superman whether it's an action hero and it is it's interesting to think about men beyond just the images and what really looks like the heart of a good man or a good woman. And what does that actually look like? So I love that. Good, good observation. Yes. And, um, so today we wanted to, uh, expand our imagination for what good men could be like by thinking about some of our favorite men in literature and, um, and stories that we love. So we're just going to kind of go back and forth and talk about some of our, our favorite heroes of our favorite stories. So Nathan, why don't you pick whichever one you want to talk about first? Um, and we can just go back and forth. Okay. Well, I'm going to pick a really easy one to go mm-hmm. first and it's cliche, but um, as Emily Gilmore says, um, <laughs> cliches are just truths. We're tired of being true. And I'm sorry, this is just true. He's one of the best literary figures of, of, of men figures that we have in art and story. And this is Jean Valjean. Mm. About 3 a.m. the other night on my birthday, I couldn't sleep. And so got up and watched um, Les Miserables. And Jean Valjean, um, just uh, the character, his, his story, who he is, 
inspired me all over again. Oh, this is the kind of man I want to be. And what I love about Jean Valjean is he's not perfect. He's a man with a past. He's a man with proclivities to um, anger and fear and doubt. But he is a master of those. And over and over again, even with his anger, with his doubt, he pushes through and he gives tenderness. Mm. He he gives himself away even when he has proclivities to be selfish. He chooses in spite of his um, of his flesh, uh, for lack of a better word, to act into the image that he wants to be and know is good. So I love Jean Valjean mm-hmm. as a character, just one of the ultimate visions of what a man can look like to me. Mm, I love that. And I'm going to say yes absolutely to that and then add that one of my favorite favorite um good men from from literature and from movies is kind of the person who helps Jean Valjean become who he is who's the priest um or the bishop rather and i love that character because uh it's funny i i also had an experience of lames with insomnia which was with, that when i came back um during one of the breaks from Christmas, I couldn't sleep. I had jet lag where I said, wake up every night from like three to five. And I read through, I didn't read through the entirety of Les Mis, but I read through like the first 300 pages. And the first just 100 pages talks about the priest. And he's just one of the best characters I've ever read because he's, he's a holy man who's not annoying. Like he's, <laughs> that's, you know what I mean though? He's, he's holy, but his holiness makes him joyful and generous mm. and kind. He lives with his sisters and he's like kind and they trust him so much that when he's like, we should let this man who appears to be a prisoner into our house, they're like, mm, seems sketch, but I guess we will. Cause we really trust you. And, um, and I just, I loved his character. He's one of the best depictions of, of a person of faith, I think, cause he's, He's faithful and pious without being sanctimonious. And the thing that I love mm. is that his kind of like act of generosity um, redefines Jean Valjean because now it's almost like because Jean Valjean is who he is because of this act of generosity, he can't ever be self-defined. He's almost, the priest says, I've bought your soul for God. And there's this sense in which Jean Valjean kind of lives in faithfulness to that his whole life. Like you're saying, it's not that he's perfect. It's not that he doesn't have doubts or whatever, but he always remembers that moment of having experienced mercy and grace from somebody. And it makes him become a good man to everybody else for the rest of his life. And I, I don't know. I just love the priest. And I love that the priest's mercy becomes this kind of impetus for Jean Valjean becoming a merciful person who loves people. And I think that's a really good picture of kind of the way that one good person can help many good people along the way. Oh, I love that. And it definitely falls into the archetypes that we find like in the hero's journey, both Valjean and the, what what do they call it? It's with the Gandalf kind of character, the the mentor. But again, he does it in a moment and how one moment of love or mercy can change someone's entire life. That's, that's wonderful. I love that. I love that too. Okay. So uh, give us another one. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Open up the list now. I wrote all these down because I was nervous I was going to forget all of them because that's how it always happens. Oh, should I go with another really um, cliche one? No, I'll save my cliche one. I'll, I'll sandwich the cliches. Okay. So this one is kind of interesting. I have this friend and he is um, a literary intellect, smarty pants, like just he's read everything in the world. And um, and his wife came to him and said, I want you to read this book. And he looked at the book and he went, a Christian romance novel. Oh, honey, I love you, but you know, I'm, I'm better than that. For sure. No. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> and, that's what he, and then his wife pushed and pushed and he said, okay, fine. And he, I was, I was sitting at a bar with him and he was telling me this and he goes, I, and I read it in a day. And by the end of that night, I was weeping. I was, oh. it was just one of those beautiful stories. And it really is one of the beautiful stories. So I went and read that um, book is called Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. And yes, mm-hmm. it is a Christian romance novel. But it's based around it's like it's an interpretation of the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. And the and it's about a prostitute, um, a hardened prostitute, um, and a man who woos and falls in love with her. Um, and uh and the redemption that's found in the act of love. And the impetus for the redemption uh, and the kind of the originator of the love is a character named Michael Hosea. Um, guess which character he stands for in the book of Hosea. Um, <laughs> but he is this picture of goodness. And I don't mean that in a cheesy perfection way in love in books and some, something you can't do through film is you can get inside their minds and you see the mm. struggle and you see the doubt and you see the frustration that this man is going through and trying to love um, this woman, a hardened woman, a woman with the past. Um, but you see over and over again him, like you were talking about uh, in the last character, him having this anchor of what true love looks like, of what um, commitment looks like. And you see him returning to that over and over again and choosing to love, choosing to be tender, choosing to be gracious when everything in the world and circumstance would allow him not to be. And it's through his faithful commitment that you see that the act of love is a redeeming act, is something that brings about life where there was death. And the act of choosing that, there is a redemption that takes place in this beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I encourage you all to read it. Um, yes, it's a Christian romance novel, but Redeeming Love is amazing. So I love Michael Hosea for my next um, figure of what a good man can look like. I love that you... Um love a Christian romance novel. And I have not actually read that. So I will have to read it at some point. I think I actually have it on my shelf at home because you told me to read it. Oh, read it. It's good. I will. And I think what struck me about that one is it sounds like he puts himself in this vulnerable position, but in that, in in that he is loving someone who can wound him and, Mm. but he chooses to be faithful and to love. And I feel like that's something we sometimes don't have an image of for good men in our world is good men who are also tender men are also willing to be vulnerable and forgiving and merciful and have are are not prideful that they have a strong humility enough to to love to love in a way that's redeeming and that doesn't just get their pride hurt and walk away from difficult situations um so that sounds beautiful okay i'm going to interject my own kind of random one in here which Let's kind hear it. Which kind of relates in a different way. And it's a Nathan character, just like you. Yes. Um, and that is Nathan Coulter from um, from Wendell Berry's... I'm thinking of it from Hannah Coulter, from the book Hannah Coulter. Although I think he features in several of the Port William novels. And he's this really interesting character because he's the main character of this book's second husband. So her first husband dies in the war. And Nathan Coulter comes back from World War II and he's like seen terrible things. And many people kind of choose to be bitter or to see the world as a place that has no meaning. But he, um, he chooses a life kind of in reaction to that, where he says, I want to make a life that's the opposite of war. And mm. he does that by being faithful to this woman who's lost her husband and has a child on her own. And he loves his community. And he kind of bears this deep sadness that he's experienced in the war. But he takes that and pours it into 
loving his farm and his family and his community and becomes this kind of like this this redeeming person in his it's kind of a similar that's why it reminded me of the one you're talking about he becomes through loving his community and his place this kind of site of redemption and Hmm. i just um I love that picture of a good man who's good because he's faithful to his place and that he's faithful as a response to the difficulties and the traumas and the horrors that he's seen in the world. And to me, I just think Nathan Coulter on a romantic level, I'm like, he's such a good man. Like he, he's faithful. He's kind of, he's not perfect. He's kind of quiet. And you, you sometimes get Hannah's perspective on him. It's kind of like, wish he'd talk more, be more emotional or this, that, but he's, he's a good man because he's faithful and because he turns his despair into a love that redeems around him. I love what you, I love the, what you're talking about, how he wants to be everything that war is not. And in the face of having experienced something so terrible, he wants, he, his reaction is to make something beautiful. And I feel like that is kind of a picture of a good man because we can all react to the terrible things in life in different ways in destructive ways and addictive ways. And he chooses to be proactive about the horrors in life that he's seen. I love that image. That's great. I got to read this book. You got to. It's so good. Okay, your turn. Take another one. Okay, my turn. Oof. Um, let's see. I'm going to go. Okay, here. I'm going to go with a really cliche one. And I'm sorry, but this has just been, he's been one of my pictures of who I want to be and the hero I want to be since I've been a kid. It's Aragorn, guys. I know, I know you've heard this and I know you know <laughs> who he is, but you know why I'm picking him. Aragorn to me is the picture of um, a good man. Uh, You see so many, and what I love about it, you see so many aspects in both the books and the movies um, of this man. You see a man who, um, in in very simple terms, he fights for good when he doesn't have to. He is the one who stands up against evil. He fights for innocence. Um, You see a strength, an inner strength, not one that's prideful and egocentric, but one that knows who he is. He knows he's a king, and that knowledge carries him through um, uh, every decision he has throughout the books, and it always carries him into defending, protecting, standing up. And you also see a tender side to him, and that's something that men don't know enough about. And very often we aren't given the freedom to um, exercise and to experience, and you see a tenderness in this warrior who carries a sword and kills a million orcs, and then you see a tenderness. And I love this idea um, I love just the character of Aragorn. It's funny. He's just been a constant representation. I still have a picture of him on my wall in my childhood home mm-hmm. um, of the kind of man I want to be. Aragorn, I think, is just, is one of the unbeatable pictures of men. Um, and I love it. And I love that he's so famous through the books and the movies because I think there's, there's hope that there are characters out there that people are responding to and loving um, that take place in popular culture that's still affecting people today. So I love Aragorn. I'm sure you have some thoughts on Aragorn as well. I love Aragorn. There's a meme that says, I don't blame Disney for my high expectations of men. I blame Tolkien. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that's entirely true. No, I love Aragorn too. I think for me, Aragorn is a good character because he's this mixture of, he's everything you think of as like a hero. Like he's kind of gruff and he's brave and he kills orcs and he protects people. But he's also, like you said, he's tender and like he has this long, faithful kind of tortured love with, with um, Arwen, who he, he's faithful to even as he's separated from her. Um, and so you see this kind of tenderness and like in the books, he's also a bard, like he'll sing these songs and poems, (laughs) which is like, you know, every, every really good man should be a bard. They should all have their poems and their songs to sing. 
Um, oh, I'm singing lots of songs during the quarantine. Keelia, my wife, is entirely <laughs> fed up with it, but I think it's very, very entertaining. I so. think it's, yeah, very entertaining and definitely part of being a good man. Um, oh, yeah, being a bard. <laughs> <laughs> just tell her that. Um, I also love the thing about uh, Aragorn that always hits me, too, is Aragorn is literally like the king, right? Return of the king is about mm. him because he's the king. But he lives this very hidden life because that's the right thing to do for the time that he lives. Do you know what I mean? Like he's... He's willing to be humble and unseen until the moment that it's right for him to be seen. And there's something really beautiful and true and manly about his capacity to be humble and yet strong and then rise to the occasion when the right moment comes. Oh, that's a great. Yeah, that's really true. He is. He is the king even through all of the stuff that he goes through. And at any time he could say, I'm the king. I shouldn't have to do this. And he does it because yeah, he's the king. He does. I love and, that. Oh, and there's that, there's that uh, scene in the movies, and I think it's in the books too, where he, he like kneels in front of Frodo after all that Frodo's been through. And he's this little hobbit. And he says, you, you know, like, I give you my pledge to take care of you. And it's just so moving to see this like big manly king man, um, show this humility and this gentleness towards Frodo. Also, one of the best chapters that will automatically and shouldn't automatically make anyone cry in the Return of the King is, um, I can't remember what it's called. It's something like it's the House of Healing. And it's a it's when, because he's the king and like one of the prophecies about him is that he can heal people. And he goes around and just heals all of the, mm. all of the soldiers who have gone through this terrible battle. And it's, again, it's like that picture of he's this warrior and he's mighty and he's a king and he's powerful, but he's also gentle and humble and a healer. And I just love that. I think men have too often been associated with, um, for lack of a better word, violence for overcoming, for anger. And of course, there's a place for protection and standing up and fighting. But I love love that you pointed out that part of being a good man is learning how to be a healer whether that's emotionally or mentally or in Aragorn's case physically I love that it's funny I actually have Aragorn's big my brothers I see the same uh, in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me uh, that's the first quote in my first chapter of my book so obviously we love Aragorn <laughs> love it it's so good yeah also I, I love what you just said about that I think sometimes the thing that struck me about every person we've talked about is they have qualities we sometimes would associate with women like healing mm. or you know you you use the word life-giving about um about or about nathan coulter there's all and i think that it just reflects the fact that when we see really good men they kind of like explode our imagination of the kind of anemic pictures that we have in in um in popular culture like they so don't much- fit into the tight no. boundaries that either culture or even old-fashioned religion has given us they they exist outside the boundaries of perhaps what we have so far imagined. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm going to pick another one and he's going to be weird, but we're going to talk about it. I love <laughs> I love Poirot. Poirot is a yes. good man. Yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah, and he is again explodes the boundaries of what a good man should be. But he's this um I mean, you can say things too. One of the things I love about Poirot, one of the like tropes in both the David Suchet BBC show and then also in the books is that women love him because he's like, he treats them like humans and he's very gracious and he listens to them. And I just love the decorum of Poirot. He has this kind of capacity of dignity and of treating every person like they are worthwhile and worth worth listening to. And sometimes he'll even kind of despise people, but it's not because he despises them 
because he he's snobby. He just he he wants them to live into their own dignity. So that's a weird thing that I love about Poirot. But the way that he treats every person and specifically women like they are worth something and they're valuable, and he treats them with dignity is something I love about Poirot. I love that, and it's it's. Um, I wonder if that has to do with the fact he was written by a woman. And I don't say mm-hmm. that is a bad thing. I wonder if men should perhaps take notes from a character like Poirot, who is, um, as you said, he. this is not said enough because um, about good men, there's something to decorum, to mm-hmm. class. I was watching a TV show the other day with Kelia and we both commented how much we liked the character, not because of their moral uprightness or this or that, but because they treated every character, every other person they talked to, uh, with a class, whether high or low, they were always gentle in every situation. They always chose the way that honored the other person. And you do see this in uh, Poirot. Keely, I have never read any of the books, but Keely had just read um, the ABC murders and the murder, murder of Roger Ackroyd. So I get the, uh, you know, the Sparks Notes version. And uh-huh. I'm going, what are you laughing at? What happened? Um, but of the Poirot I know is the David Suchet BBC version. And I love, and you're right, as I, as I think back walking to this as a kid, I did see this vision of a man who was still fighting evil in his own way, mm-hmm. but, um, but he did it with class and decorum. And I also, real quick, this is a, a side note, I love that fighting evil and standing up to darkness doesn't have to look like punching a guy in the face or yep. even wielding a sword like Aragorn, which is amazing too, that you can fight evil and stand up to darkness in your own way in the same way that Poirot does with gentleness, mm-hmm. with class, with wit. And I think that's such a great image that um, standing up to darkness, being a strong man can look so different on different men. That's why I love that Poirot was included on this list. Yes. And also I'm going to say one last thing about him, which reminded me of that he is, he's polite and all those things, but the politeness is not a facade for something underneath. And sometimes he, he bursts out of his politeness because of his his care for truth or for justice. I was, I've been, this is really silly, but we have all of the Poirots for free on our library website here. And nice. so, it's just so fun. So I've been watching them while I grade. Uh, I just complained to Nathan for like 20 minutes about all the, I had a lot of grading last week. So I have a strong cup of coffee and I'll watch Poirots. And one of them ends in this really fascinating way because he, he kind of is curt and does a thing to find out a, a murderer. And this woman at the end of the show is like, that was kind of, you know, um, that was sneaky. And, you know, that probably kind of offended everyone. And Poirot just looks at her and he goes, I don't approve of murder. And he's like, of course I did that thing because I wanted to show, uh, he was willing to burst out of his politeness only because he cared about justice. And so it's like this picture of, it's not covering up some, some other kind of bad quality. He's polite um, and has this great, capacity for justice and yeah i just love poirot he's great i love that he's a great character i'm so glad we included him on the list yes okay give me another one um i'm gonna go with Dwayne the rock johnson oh wow i just think <laughs> i'm totally kidding <laughs> this is out of left field <laughs> i'm totally kidding by the way he might be a great guy i have no idea that's not on my list he just pops into my head and i thought that was hilarious um okay um the next guy so um i think he and Dwayne the rock johnson are a lot alike um <laughs> And probably multiple areas, but my next pick is Mr. Knightley from Amazing. Emma. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, what I want is yet another version of Emma, because there haven't been enough, in which Dwayne the Rock Johnson plays Mr. Knightley. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Well, my friend Lou says the best version of Emma ever was um, the movie Clueless, I think. And uh, we've had many... Um, 
emotional debates about how that's not actual a version of Emma. And he says it is, um, but he says that's the best version. But back to Mr. Knightley. Um, I have never read the book. I've only seen about 17 million iterations of the movie <laughs> and enjoyed really, truly every one. Um, but what I love, especially in the in the recent one, I love, and I'm going to probably reiterate some of the things we said about Poirot, is you see this picture of a strongman resolute. He has his ideas and his um, vision of the world, how it should be and how he shouldn't. And the way he shares that with Emma, someone he loves and cares about who is often in the wrong, is gentle, is confident, is kind, um, while still being resolute. And so I, I love this. I love the picture and is faithful. He's yeah. faithful to her. Um, I love, uh, I love the picture of Mr. Knightley, but you having read all Jane Austen can say much more. No, I really can't. I, I think the thing I love about, I love Mr. Knightley much better. I think he's my favorite Austen hero. Um, I, Mr. Darcy, I kind of have mixed feelings about because obviously he's very good, but he's like the opposite end of Poirot, which is like, he does all the right things, but he's really kind of rude. And there's a part <laughs> of me that's like, you're really rude. Maybe you should be less rude. Um, so that's my feeling about Darcy. Um, and then like Edward Ferris is just like, wow, I'm getting really spicy about Jane Austen heroes, but <laughs> he's just kind of like a waste of space. Like Eleanor's this wonderful person and he is so unable to like actually say what he wants that he makes everyone in his life suffer, including his ex fiance. Anyway, all that to say, Mr. Knightley, however, is you digress. I digress. Mr. Knightley is this, I don't, he's just so good. He's, he's, he begins also, I love that his friendship with Emma is that to begin with. It's this friendship and he's faithful to all his people. He's kind of like this strong centered person while the rest of the world kind of tumbles about him in various states of, you know, duress and drama. Um, and I love that he helps Emma become a better version of herself, uh, because he really cares about her. And... While allowing her to be herself. The, yeah. one thing, I'm just going to interject this really quickly. Um, I love that they have a sparring mental relationship and he allows her to be a strong woman. Yes. And they both make better v versions of each other. They they see the best in each other and they help it while respecting the strength of the other person. I think a good man um, has to be okay with a strong woman. And you see him do this so well and beautifully. Yeah, and he loves Emma for it. And... And he wants to see her strength be well used because it's what he admires mm. in her. And I love that too. And I also, I love what he's willing to give up for her. Like he ends up actually coming to her, her, her house rather than to his estate. You know, it's such a trial when you have to choose which estate you'll live on. <laughs> yeah. if, if I had a nickel. <laughs> I know. For every estate I have, I have no nickels. <laughs> Um, no, I, he's just this wonderful mixture of confidence and he's a good friend and the, yeah, their relationship is so enjoyable because it's two equally strong and interesting intellects and wills and humors and he's just a good man. Um, yeah. I love and him. I will say, Hey guys out there, don't be scared of a woman who, who, as mom would say, hits the tennis ball back. Yes. In fact, look for one. One of the things that I love about my wife is that we ha we can have rousing conversations and debates on important things. And that is what brings a relationship, makes something beautiful. The men who can't handle that are not strong men. Yeah. Strong men look for strong women. Yes. I, amen. Soap soapbox has gotten off of now. Amen. I agree. And I think that something that's kind of an odd thing is I think a lot of times people will, when men will say they want strong women. 
Um, but what they really want is to have like owned a strong woman. Do you know yes. what I mean? Rather yes. than put, put a tiger in a cage. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than say, I want someone who will come alongside me and be like Mr. Knightley and Emma and kind of rule our domain together and, and be strong um, next to each other. Um, and so, yes. Amen. Preach it. Okay. I think <laughs> we each both get one more character. So choose carefully. I mean, we're getting to the very end of pictures <laughs> yeah. of good men in art. <laughs> there's, there's none. There's no others. That's it. We're done. <laughs> okay. Um, Got to write a few uh, more novels and movies, Nathan. Yeah, I really do. Okay, I'm okay. I'm I'm racking my mind because I'm literally at the end of my list. I'm trying to think who is a good. I'm gonna go. (laughs) I I can only think of um, like my childhood, and it's gonna go superhero. And I just really like Bruce Wayne, but especially the iteration from The Dark Knight. I love that he chooses goodness over and over again. He doesn't have to. He utilizes everything he has for the betterment of others, for the protection of others. I love seeing that, especially in the face of a a villain like the Joker. I've talked about Bruce Wayne and the Joker over and over again. But in our last episode, Joy, that we talked about this, we talked about antiheroes. And it was interesting, uh, the rise of the interest in the Joker um, Mm -hmm. when – Batman was a hero. And I think that's interesting. That's very telling about the state of men and where we are as a culture today. But I think that Bruce Wayne, especially in the, um, the dark Knight iteration, the trilogy Mm. is such a beautiful picture of a man who sacrifices a man who chooses to use what he's been given for the betterment of the people around him, his friends. And, um, and ultimately is the very complete opposite of the Joker, which is very often the definition of man we have today, selfish, chaotic, prideful, and he is mm-hmm. humble, hidden, uh, yeah. gentle, good, strong, and protective. So a little cliche, but again, no. cliches are just truths. We're tired of being true. Bruce Wayne is an amazing The other, man. I totally agree. And the other thing that came up to my mind while you were talking about that is that Bruce Wayne does not virtue signal. He's good because the people in his life need him to be good. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The dark night. Yeah. And he's literally, he takes, everybody thinks he's the villain because he's doing what is right for the sake of doing what is right, not for the sake of getting accolades or pats in the back. So true. And I think that's, I think in our weird social media generation, it's, it's hard to be good without wanting to broadcast that we're good, but he's just, he's just plain old good. And he's, and he's like Nathan Coulter too, which is, he has lots of reasons to not be good, to despair and all that, but he, he presses on and he's good. Um, and chooses to be a redeeming force because of his pain rather than rather than one who despairs. Oh, that's true. Okay, and mine is also very cliche. Um, and it's every it's every young whimsical girl's crush, but for a reason. And that is Gilbert Blythe. Gilbert, <laughs> Gilbert's so good and he's so he wholesome. Is. Um and I, he has some great comebacks and one-liners too. That's what I always liked you know, about him. He's like they, he has a similar relationship to Mr. Knightley and Emma in this way, which is that their relationship is based on kind of like a tug and pull of equal strength and a friendship and humor and teasing. And um, I think he loves Anne because Anne is the only girl that can challenge him. Mm. And um, but he's also I mean, there's so many things that are good about Gilbert. His smile how cute he is. I'm just kidding. Um, also, isn't it weird how we like get these images of characters in our brains? Um, and so you become attached to them. Um, but he's, he is also faithful and he gives mm. things up. That's also a theme. I think I see in a lot of these men is their willingness to sacrifice things 
or ease or comfort for the people that they love, for their communities and for their families. But also continually. Continually, yeah. And over like, and over again, when it gets harder and harder, they still do the faithfulness behind their decisions. Yeah, and like his in the books when he when he gives up the teaching position so that Anne can be with Marilla after Matthew dies, it's just this little thing that he he doesn't do to be approved of or or be neat or cool. He just does it because it's the right thing to do and because he's faithful and because he cares about Anne. And um, he's a hard worker. He's smart. Gilbert's just great. He's wonderful. Gilbert is great. Oh, well, Nathan, I, I feel like um, we've we've gone through quite a few characters, and there are more, I'm sure, but I feel like we might have cited, like, you know, 70% of every book we ever <laughs> yeah. read. Um, yeah, a good majority. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would love it if you would end this podcast uh, reading us a little excerpt from your book. Would you mind doing that? I would love to. But before you do that, I should also say, tell everybody where they can get your book, where they can find you on social media. And I'm just going to say my own little plug for this. This is a weird time to launch a book. And this is a really good book. So I would advise everyone to A, go buy it. B, if you if you are a good man or you want to be a good man, go buy it. But also if you have good men in your life, um, men who have that desire to live into everything that God has created them to be, get it as as a gift for them, as a Father's Day gift, as a birthday gift. This is a worthwhile book. And um, yeah, I just want to encourage everyone to buy it. It's a weird time to launch a book and I want everyone to support you. So that's my little pitch. But now also tell us um, where we can find it, find you, and then read us a passage from your book. <laughs> you can find it wherever books are sold. Um, I believe even in the UK at Brookstones uh, on the websites available oh. on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pretty much wherever books are sold, you can um, grab a copy now. It means so much. Please drop me a note on my Facebook. Just look up Nathan Clarkson or my Instagram, Nathan J. Clarkson. Or you can visit my website at NathanClarkson.me. But seriously, it would mean so much for you to take um, part in my stories and grab a copy. And it means so much that you would uh, want to, to listen to my thoughts and words and, and, and everything and stories. So thank you so much um, for considering grabbing a copy. Um, yeah, so those are the places you can get it. Yep. And then people can find you on Facebook. You have a Facebook page and Instagram where you have lots of eerie pictures of empty New York right now. Yes, I do. Yes. So check him out there. Okay. Close us with a, a benediction, a section from a good man. And thank you so much for joining me today, Nathan. This has been so fun. Well, thank you for having me. This this benediction, this comes at the very uh, end of the first chapter where I talk about um, the desire to live out a great story that lives in all of every young boy, and it still lives in the hearts of every man. Um, and so this is just the closing um, paragraph. And it says... The voice that calls to me is the same one that spoke the universe into existence. It's the unchanging, ever-present, and timeless voice of my creator calling out to the deepest parts of my being. And while I have wandered, stumbled, and fallen along the way, my creator's voice still speaks. Even though I am an imperfect, struggling man, it calls to me just as it did when I was a young boy fighting imaginary enemies, playing pretend, telling me I was created to be a good man, and I can be should I only listen and obey. And you are. Thank you so much, Nathan. 